live from Beit Shemesh and broadcasted around the world. You are listening to the From Entrepreneur Podcast with your host, Nahum Kligman. Interviews and advice from Jewish entrepreneurs from around the world. Listen, learn, be Masliach. Welcome to episode 50 of the From Entrepreneur. And today I have a fantastic, exciting person interviewing Brian Wallace, who is a founder and president of Now Sourcing Incorporated. Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Nakam. Am I coming in okay? Yeah, yeah. I hear you perfectly, loud and clear. Excellent. So first of all, why don't we uh, – I mean I, I can't wait to hear your story. Uh, you know, I know a little bit about what you do, but why don't you tell our audience what is Now Sourcing? So Now Sourcing, we, my wife and I actually started this 11 and a half years ago. We've pivoted a few times, but – these days, and basically since late 2008, early 2009, we're one of the premier infographic design agencies, which is a pretty fascinating field. Interesting. So what would you say, uh, what is, info, if you had to explain what is an infographic, I mean, I'm sure everybody who's listening has actually seen one, but how, do, how would you explain that? So to answer your question, what I would explain as a proper infographic requires a little bit of a, a, little bit of a backstory, if you will. So I feel like a lot of people don't necessarily know how to think. They turned off their creative brains a long time ago and are bored to death of paragraphs and paragraphs of text. Also, in today's world, we have a digital landfill of all sorts of stuff trying to compete for our attention, whether it's paid ads or cats on treadmills on YouTube, you name it. There's just tons and tons of stuff, not to mention all the political stuff. It's just, it's ridiculous. Like, how do we get a moment to even think straight? And we've kind of lost our way with that, right? So, People don't even know why they have strongly held opinions anymore. So I feel like infographics kind of break through that noise by telling a very powerful story where it looks like it's just there to catch your attention for a minute. But then once you get engrossed in it, you're really kind of going through it saying, wow, you know, this is something that I could read for three, four minutes, way past what a a video metrics might be, because it's got that compelling story. It looks really good and it's designed and architected to really be appreciated by not just, let's say, a core constituency, but also to a much larger mass appeal. That's great. So, I mean, I, I've used infographics before, and I'm sure everybody's seen them. They are, I, I love them when they're blown up as posters. I think they make fantastic posters. But yeah, but the designs are usually fantastic. And I've been to your website, and obviously, we're going to dig in a little bit more into your company and to the type of designs uh, that you've done. But uh, for now, before we dig more into now sourcing. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? Where do you live now? Uh, that type of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So I was born in a faraway land called Brooklyn, <laughs> but I might not sound like I'm from Brooklyn. Yeah, you don't have Brooklyn accent. Like, no, not at all. My parents, thankfully, had the sense of removing me from that accent where I would not be understood by a lot of the world. <laughs> and we moved to Rockland County, um, which is like New York City suburb, depending where you live in the New York metro area. It's the eternal debate of is that upstate or is it metro New York? All I know is, is that I can get to Manhattan from there faster than a lot of people that live in places that wouldn't consider themselves upstate. So right. I was born and raised near Muncie. I grew up in Pomona, if you all know the area. I'm sure many of your listeners do. Sure. And spent plenty of time there, grew up there. I myself am a Balichuva, so you know, I went to just regular school. Um, came religious later in life, and we can certainly talk about that as well. And yeah, it was a nice place to grow up. Um, have a, being a good old suburbs boy, learned a nice non-regional dialect to you know, 
be able to converse well with businesses and do the weather. (laughs) And yeah, eventually we were ready for a change. And especially since we started our own business and New York's a fairly expensive place, we kind of like the Midwest. So we actually, in August of 2001, my wife and I had a chance to visit Louisville, Kentucky for a health reason. And we said, huh, you know what? Like, this is kind of an interesting part of the country. This is nice. And then two weeks later, it was 9-11. And we said, hmm, (laughs) the Midwest is looking a little bit uh, better. And then, you know, like I said, I started working for myself. uh, I actually worked in tech for a number of years before starting this marketing firm. I made my way up to being a CTO. And one day I basically said, look, you know, I really would appreciate, you know, having a better kind of balance and working in a a corporate environment sometimes is a little tricky uh, when you're a Jewish person, you know, people look at you funny when you're walking out very early on Friday and there's all these quote unquote uh, made up Jewish holidays. Well, this is in, this was New York Metro. Oh, okay. I'm saying so, (laughs) yeah, so I spent, correct. So I spent time working in, you know, greater Northeast until I started my own company. And then about a year or so in, we went out to Louisville. So our headquarters is still in Louisville, but I'm talking to you now from the Cincinnati Metro area. So I, I was ready for a somewhat larger Jewish community, but wasn't ready to go back to New York. And, you know, do you have people in Louisville, which is our headquarters? So I was kind of looking for a city that, One, had a a nice, growing, loving community. Two, had good business opportunities. And three, was still regionally close to Louisville. So we're about an hour. The Cincinnati office is probably about an hour and 30, hour and 45 minutes away from Louisville. So I can, you know, visit there frequently while still having a a lifestyle. Mm -hmm. So Not exactly what everybody does, right? I I recognize, (laughs) as I'm sure you would agree, Nakam, that a lot of entrepreneurs are used to swimming upstream. Most people don't move from, you know... New York to Kentucky and all of that, but that's fine. <laughs> well, what you mentioned, so you mentioned you're about Shuva. When did, did it happen before you got married or how, what's that story? Yeah, great question. And it's not something that I usually talk about in, on the internet and stuff. So I, I'm very appreciative of your podcast because a lot of people in the audience aren't necessarily even interested in that in the, the business world. So yeah, um, I actually became religious uh, later in life, really post-college, met my wife in college. So we kind of were on our way together. And yeah, um, I would say that we started off kind of conservative and all of that because when you're not really religious, Orthodox seems kind of scary and why would they want me and all that kind of stuff. Right. And yeah, eventually, you know, a whole number of set of circumstances put us on our path and on our way. And yeah, so, you know, I became religious already as an adult and in the business world in corporate America. So uh, it's, that's not very easy. especially when companies are used to you um, one way and then you're another and now you know right they probably think you walked off like uh, you got abducted by aliens or something right or I joined some cult or something (laughs) right right Right. yeah right and you have to be careful of that I mean you know appearances especially if you're majority of people there are non-Jews or not religious Jews there's a lot of sensitivity and tact that you have to employ you know you can't just say oh I'm like this now right (laughs) It's difficult. <laughs> right, right. I'm sure all changes are hard, and uh, but I'm sure you found it – it was definitely rewarding. Obviously, you did it for uh, fantastic reasons. And okay, so Absolutely. Wouldn't so, change a thing. So, <laughs> you, so you did you start – now this is before you started now sourcing or it was uh, after? Correct, yes. It was well before I started now sourcing. And I just kind of – over the, the next few years, not too many more, I'd say just maybe like through you – know, Where's my mental math today? Uh, probably another three years or so down the line, 
was when we started now sourcing. So I just kind of got to the point where, you know, I saw other from people, you know, starting their businesses, operating their businesses. And I said, hey, you know, just for the holidays alone and the flexibility, you know, because being an entrepreneur, you can work as much or as little as you want. You want to be the four hour work week guy? Well, you might starve to death, but <laughs> you can work those four hours if you want. Right. And, right. you know, we've got our Yum Rishon where we can go heads down and, you know, work everything on Sunday. And that's a little weird sometimes in America. Right. But there's just ways that you can kind of catch up and make it work for the Jewish calendar. Excellent. So were you, were you always – so you, you mentioned that before you did an outsourcing, you're into tech, you were a CTO, so obviously you know your, your tech side of things. Were you always entrepreneurial and in tech growing up? Yeah. So I would say I've always been into technology. I had an Apple IIc growing up when I was seven years old or something like that. So I've always kind of had a computer around me. Um, the, my first experience with the internet, I think I was in probably about 11th grade or so, and I just took to it like a, a fish to water. Uh, definitely seemed like it was my thing. I always wanted to do something or other with the web. I've been working one way or another with the web and tech and marketing since I was still in college in 97 or so. Right. And yeah, I mean, in terms of entrepreneurship, I'd say that I kind of I probably caught that bug from my family that my grandmother, who's no longer with us, uh, started a jewelry store in lower Manhattan decades ago. And you wow. know, my father kind of took that over and I got a, a taste of that. But 9-11 kind of really wrecked that business, not to be like a big downer on your podcast, but right. basically like after 9-11, like all of lower Manhattan and down was shut off. So like that wasn't going to work. They didn't really want me to do that forever anyway. And yeah, I mean, I remember in high school, if you remember that game, Magic the Gathering, I kind sure. of had this little side business with a, a buddy of mine at the time. And we had this great, I don't know what in the heck we were thinking, but it was amazing where we would buy like boxes of those packs and right. then we would go to like baseball card and comic stores and we would have we would like enter agreements with these stores and then sell like the rare cards with them. And I've also kind of had like a bit of a legalese brain for a while. I almost went to law school, but I decided to get other degrees instead and kind of work more in the business tech entrepreneurship marketing realm. But I would write up contracts with exclusivity agreements with the card stores and I'd say, hey, you know, you get a cut of this and don't sell other rare cards. And at first they're like, yeah, whatever, what's magic? And we would just show up on the weekend and you know, make all this money. Eventually right. they were like, hey, you're a pretty smart kid. Get out. <laughs> so, but that was fun. It was an interesting experience as a high schooler. Eventually like my partner and I went to different colleges, so we just disbanded it. But it was, it was a fun learning experience, and it was all kind of like before you would sell things online. So this was – you know, super old school way to kind of do things, but yeah, I, I remember I'm sure my, Gary uh, V and people like that would really appreciate 100%. that kind of story. Yeah, well, a funny story. Well, fun, I'll tell you a funny story about that. But just Please. before that, with now the gatherings, I I never got into it. I think I was already in Israel in 1990 when this was becoming uh, sure. pretty big. But my younger brother Donnie, he was uh, very big into Magic the Gathering and. I know, like cards today, even some of the rare ones are, are going for thousands of dollars. It's, uh, yeah, they're fortune. It, it's mm -hmm. crazy. But when I was, but I, I was going to say, when I was younger, I was also selling baseball cards and going to trade shows and stuff. And I used to go to the same. I remember Gary V as a little kid selling baseball cards because we used to do some of the same trade shows together. Yeah, and we were he both totally only, did that. Yeah, and we were both only we were the only like thirteen, fourteen year olds, you know. Uh, at the time, you know, doing these booths when and doing these shows when everyone else was like in their 30s, 40s, and 50s. And then you had these uh, two kids that had their booths. You're watching and, these kids just cleaning up, right? Exactly. Absolutely. It was like Gary and myself. So that's funny. So, so you're always entrepreneur, always in, into this stuff. Okay, so let's let's talk about the now sourcing story. So you're you leave the CTO stuff. You said, hey, I want to work for myself. You said you said to your wife, 
hey, I have this idea, or how do they yeah. go? Yeah, absolutely. So she and I, a good way for all the entrepreneurs listening, a good way to ruin your life, marriage, and business is to not be in agreement with your wife. So always <laughs> make sure that your wife is on board. Right. So yeah, my wife and I started it. I do a lot of the day-to-day. She's more kind of big picture and still is involved. So back then, here's the thing. So even before the now sourcing story, something that made me make the leap from tech to marketing, and I'm sure a lot of the folks listening can, will, and should appreciate this piece. Many people that are in tech are not conversant with the rest of the world. They kind of have their little acronyms and like they're shy and they're, they don't like to speak to people and especially audiences. And they're not necessarily free flowing on that kind of level of communication. I've always had that. And I was always frustrated because I'm just standing around a bunch of, you know, tech nerds that want to kind of talk in their own code in their own world. And I found that over time, as you rise through the ranks in tech, everybody's just like, hey, what kind of computer should I get? Should I get this phone? What about this? What about that? So you're basically like Johnny on call, tech support guy. Everything's always your fault. And like, <laughs> there's always some server blowing up, some project that's not going the way you want, some software that's overdue, blah, blah, blah. Right. And I just found over time that people basically just want to know that everything's okay and explain it to them in the simplest form possible. And eventually, I just said, you know what? This is really just marketing. (laughs) So to kind of have the human and technical side is a devastating combination when you're a marketer, right? Because a lot of marketers don't know how the internet works. So to have, and I also have, you know, social psychology and neuroscience and some of my degree backgrounds. So I really very well understand what makes people tick. And I can help people understand what people want. Because again, like what I said, a lot of people don't necessarily know how to think. Not to go into a super tangent, but in short, let me give you an example. Lots of people have opinions that they hold strong to, but they don't know why they have them. For instance, have you ever heard the air quotes conventional wisdom that breakfast is the most important meal of the day? Sure. Where does it come from? Gamara Baba. No, I'm just kidding. I know. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Probably, but um, for everybody else in the internet world that may not have uh, a Gamara Baba interpretations and whatnot, right? <laughs> most people will just say, "Oh, I heard it from my mom and dad. I heard it from my friends, relatives. Some scientists told me. I'm sure there's a study. It gives me energy. Of course, right. it gives you energy. All food gives you energy. That's not an answer. So eventually, when you trace it back to the source, you'd be surprised to know that in the mid-30s, Kellogg's was just looking for a way to sling cereal because they invented breakfast cereal. Wow. There was a process being rolled out at the time. And they said, huh, how are we going to shove this stuff down people's gullets? Let's cultivate an interest for breakfast. You know what people used to eat pre-30s for breakfast? Steak what? and like whatever was sitting around. Wow, it's steak crazy. and eggs. Yeah, right. There was no breakfast as a category. Now we have all these little sub-industries and energy drinks and power bars and this and that and gym this. You know, it's right. a multi, multi-ridiculous industry. So people don't know how to think, how to be creative anymore. Everybody, when they were a little kid, they were builders and architects and painters and dreamers and musicians. And then mom and dad or whoever comes along and says, no, you're not going to make any money with that. So we just really just overpower in terms of creativity because it all starts with an idea. So a lot of companies come to us and they say, hey, you know, we're this. Go make us an infographic. And a lot of times they just say, you know what? Just make something that's going to make us money. We're not going (laughs) to tell you what to do it on. And those are the jobs that we generally outperform majorly on. 
right, because they, they trust our creativity. Right, which is fantastic because as you said, it's not just the creativity and the design, but it's also the neuroscience behind it and the, the logic behind it. And I, I think that's fantastic. So but when you so going back to, to when you were starting the company, you said yeah. like infographics really, I mean, just from what I've seen, really started coming to play mainstream maybe about four years ago. Correct. Right. So, like, when did you actually? So, what was now sourcing? What was the original purpose of now sourcing? What was the original uh, thing you guys were doing? Sure. So, my wife actually coined the phrase now sourcing. So, at the time, I was a CTO, and really, what I was looking to do with the company is basically be like a portable outsourced CEO, CTO, help you make good, you know, vendor recommendations and implementation consulting, that kind of stuff. Right. But. You know, you know how it is. People don't think about what kind of milk they buy on the shelves, right? They might like skim. They might like 2%. So generally, they look at the expiration date and the cap. They don't care about what brand. For those of us that keep Columbus Rival, okay, that's like one thing or organic or something. But a lot of everybody else, like, you're not looking at what brand it is. What I'm saying is there's many things, many services, many products out there in the world that are just a commodity. And if all you are is a commodity with tech consulting and I build websites – not knocking the people that do, but if you're not known for something special about it, they might pick you today, but they probably won't pick you tomorrow because you're replaceable. You're a widget. You didn't stand out enough to them. You didn't make something memorable to the point where you're amazing. I have people that after I have an initial consultation, they will go to Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and just start posting. I had the most incredible meeting of my life. I couldn't believe it was even a sales call. Like, I didn't tell them (laughs) to do that. Or I'll get an email from them at 5.30 in the morning the next day. Hmm, you really got me thinking about X, Y, Z. So you have to be incredible at what you do. Sure. We're we're in a big, big world with lots of competition. So, I mean, you know, we we all understand, like, Hashem controls the world and controls the wealth. But you have to put together, you know, your effort. And if you don't, somebody else is taking your lunch money. Yeah, so back then, so now sourcing is kind of a play on words of outsourcing and offshoring. There was a word called near sourcing, and now as an on-demand sourcing was supposed to be what it was. Mm. But I didn't really think we were standing out enough, very competitive, and it just it wasn't doing it for us. So along comes 2006, and 2006 was an interesting year, 2006, 2007. This was the early dawn of social media, back when businesses were not on Facebook and on Twitter and Instagram didn't exist yet and Snapchat didn't exist yet. And LinkedIn was around, but so was junk like Friendster and MySpace and whatever. But this was the first dawning of this for business use. So we were in that very early. So version two of now sourcing was very much a social media agency. The problem was there's two different things that people sometimes associate together, but are not the same thing. One thing is being a full service agency. And one thing is being end to end. If you say that you're full service, I'm scared because there's no way on earth that you can possibly be good at all of these things. Hmm. You might have lots of partners, and that's fine. Just say that. But there's just so many things you can be good at. So as social became a much larger space, now you have people that all they do is manage Instagram accounts for famous cats. And cats have (laughs) lawyers and book deals and movies. And what are we even talking about? So. It just got to the point where it was ridiculous. You know, Twitter would change their, you know, some character limit or background size, and I would get 200 emails. Oh, no, what's going to happen, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, we had to be experts at strategy and online reputation management and landing pages and you name it. I mean, it was just ridiculous. So we said, after a couple of years of this, although we, we had some great success, it just got ridiculously busy, and a lot of people wanted to go in-house and all that, and it was difficult to justify costs when a lot of people just think, oh, just have a millennial run my Twitter account for a Fortune 500. <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. Right? <laughs> so it, it's, it's not enough. Right. So around two, late 2008, 
I'm really frustrated with the direction of the company. I don't want us to shake apart. I don't want us to be kind of really being stretched thin. And I said, all right, let's look at the culmination of strengths that we are. We're great storytellers. We did lots of viral marketing and stuff like that. Remember back in the day, you know, places like dig.com, sure. all that human-powered internet. So there were basically, at the time, there were like 100 people that controlled 50% of that homepage and would crash servers at will. I was one of these people. So I've been very good at this whole viral part for a long time. I used to have to fire our agency because people wouldn't have the good enough server infrastructure to handle the load. Wow. <laughs> it was crazy. Wow. Yeah. So that was a great time. But they, you know, Dig basically bought, got bought out and they re-architected it. So it destroyed the user community. Right. And a lot of things around 2008, 2009, the whole world with social and the internet changed dramatically. So we needed some something different and more focused to do. So again, culmination strengths. We're great storytellers. We have a lot of connections. We can make things viral, viral in a good way, not just meaningless viral. And we're good at graphics. We're good at all these different things. So what are we going to do? So back then, there were probably a handful of people doing infographics. And they were all kind of bad, actually. Right? <laughs> so I would look at them, and they were there was no real story. There were typos in it, spelling errors, punctuation errors. You'd go to the bottom to look at the sources, and they'd either not be there or just say wikipedia.org, so you couldn't even refute somebody's argument. So all of these things, I said, wow, this is going to be an incredible industry, and like nobody's really doing it right, so let's just go rebuild the business, double down on this, and build it on 100 things that people should be doing. So since then, you know, we've done probably a few thousand infographics. We've done stuff for all sorts of Fortune 500s, tax startups, nonprofits, agencies. We do stuff all over the world. We do plenty of stuff in Israel. Just got hired by a bank in Serbia. Serbia? I mean, I don't know. So <laughs> wow. it, it's kind of we love your we love Serbia, but yeah, great, awesome guys. So um, <laughs> so it's kind of all over the place with that, and we're really good at what a lot of people would consider useless facts because. We're almost like an information bureau network of pretty much every kind of industry there is. See, that's what I love about the story. And it's like what you were saying before about sticking out and giving a reason for customers to stay with you. You guys became known as the infographic company. That if you're a Fortune 500 company, if you're a big company around the world, there's only and you want a, a quality top-of-the-line infographic, there's one place to go to, and that's now sourcing. Exactly. I mean, we're not, you never want to be where you're the only place without competition. That usually means that you're wrong <laughs> you know, wants you, or that you're too early. So right. we weren't first. And being first isn't always a good thing because a lot of they people make all the mistakes. just get chopped up. Right, exactly. So we were early, but not first. And we've just figured out things that people want that I think a lot of the competition doesn't really do quite in the same way. So lots of people can make infographics and there's a lot of free and do-it-yourself stuff. When people start saying, oh, Brian, how can you stay in business? There's all this do-it-yourself stuff. I say, listen, what kind of car did you drive to work today? Did you build it? How about the house you live in? Did you build that? Unless right. you're an automaker or a custom home builder, of course you didn't build it. So infographics are the same thing. There's an actual blueprint to it. There's a spark of an idea that we have. We actually have a research team that researches the concepts and writes the story because research data by itself is a lie, right? People lie through statistics. 75% right. of all stats are made up on the spot, sometimes 86%, right? It's nonsense. <laughs> if I say three out of four dentists agree that Aquafresh is the toothpaste for you, you, even on a subconscious level, are thinking, 
man, those three doctors are getting a lifetime supply. <laughs> exactly. <right? laughs> so it's nonsense. And a story by itself is self-serving, right? Whoever you know pays for the textbooks writes the news. Whoever owns the news media channels writes the news, and everybody else just parrots it. Right. So just a story with no root in reality and nothing to kind of refute those facts is useless. When you marry those two things together, it's solid. So that's that blueprint that I'm talking about. Then we do design, which is... You've probably seen some of the work. It's great, right? It's not just templates. It's not what I like to call bathroom symbols infographics, where they just take those little bathroom symbols guys off the doors and just stack them together and color some of them. That's not an infographic. An infographic is designed to make your brain stop, look at it, and then think. And then once it has an entrance into your mind, you're probably going to sit there and read it for three or four minutes, which blows the doors off of video engagement in a large way too. Right. Especially I think video engagement is more, is passive as, as, as popular as it is. This is, this is, it's like, it's like a real life version of, of, of a video, like, but there's no passive. Actually your brain has to concentrate and has to read. So actually absorbing the content much better than you would a video. Exactly. You only have 2.7 seconds to get somebody's attention online anyway. So that's what we're achieving. We're making, if you look at the top of every single thing we do, it's not just some words. There's some incredible something or other going on there. We spend a lot of time with title. We might go through 20 different titles before we pick a title, right? So right. everything we do is intentful and purposeful where we're just going to miss the mark. So let, let's talk about the uh, metrics a little bit in terms of so a customer, a client contacts you and says, hey, one infographic. How, what's the, how long does it take to create one on average? What's the average cost? How many people actually work on, an, on any given infographic? Like it's not just, hey, you get an idea, you put someone on it, and boom, they pump it out in two days. I mean this is top-quality stuff. So what's the process? Exactly. Yeah, so top-quality stuff doesn't take five minutes, and it's not cheap, right? right? So this isn't Fiverr or anything like that, not throwing shade on any particular companies. But I'm just saying it's not a crowdsourced platform of people that work together – that have never worked together, that just throw things together. Everything we do has a purpose. So, How many people are in your company, is, by the way? Uh, we're just under 15, all in. 15, all in, mm-hmm. that's nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what we're doing there is we're coming up with a strategy. It's a campaign. It's not just an infographic. It's not just some picture. So a lot of people just basically leave it to us. They're just saying, hey, here's who we are. Here's some goals we have. Go wild. So I'll tell you something that we have going on right now. I think you and I were talking about this before the show, just in terms of the LinkedIn thing that we were talking about. Mm -hmm. So we have a piece right now, depending on when this podcast is coming out, that is just about to cross 100,000 page views just on a post that I did on LinkedIn. Not to mention that it's been featured all over the news. It's been like in Market Watch and all sorts of crazy places. And yeah, I mean, you don't even get that on, pardon me? Which one? I'll put it in uh, in our episode page. Sure. Yeah, I can pull that up for you. Well, you can send it to me. I'll post it in, I'll post it in our uh, um, yeah, absolutely. In the episode yeah, page. Can, People can check it out. I'll send you the links after. But the name of the piece is The Habits of Highly Successful Entrepreneurs. So we knew the market we were after. We knew that business people would love it. We knew that people that like inspiration, things about your career, entrepreneurship. Basically, people want their lives to be better. But they're also pretty lazy, unmotivated, and they don't want to work hard. But then when they see tips... <laughs> From superhuman level working people like Zuckerberg and Elon Musk and Benjamin Franklin, you know, whatever age where there's all these successful entrepreneurs, when they see how they structure their lives, they say, wow, I could do that. 
And maybe I won't be as successful as this person, but I'm aspirational to improve my life, especially, you know, this point in the year when people are still kind of on their high of New Year's resolutions. You know, they've probably given up at the gym at this point, but they still want to do some <laughs> level of life hack or another. So, for instance, let's take uh, one of the stats that a lot of people are quoting and love calling out on. Elon Musk schedules his day in five-minute increments. Think about it. So a lot of people do meetings, right? You and I do plenty of meetings, I'm sure. Sure. And most of our meetings, we book for an hour or half an hour or whatever it is. So right. let's say we do. Let's say we have an eight-hour day, right? And let's say we have one-hour meetings, and we can't just have meetings all day because we have to, you know, eat and take a second and actually do work and not just be in meetings. Right. So let's say this is probably a high number. Let's say six out of those eight hours or some time that you can do meetings. That means that you have six increments and one person doesn't show up, the other one just wants to waste your time. You know, I mean, so you're incredibly unproductive. You only have six slots, you have six, you know, bullets in your gun, whatever it is. Now let's make it a 30 million, a 30 minute, right? So now you're going to double that. Now imagine you're doing five minute. I mean, you've basically given yourself like, it's incredible, right? Like you That's could funny. have like a, a month of create of productivity in two days. Wow. So it's effective and it forces everybody to cut through and just do it, right? If you know that you have five minutes, I think Gary Vee is like that too. Listen, you know, people who are highly desirable can do stuff like that. Right. Even if you're not highly desirable, you know, get yourself on the track. If you knew that you had five minutes to talk to me, you're not going to tell me about the weather and talk about your dog and whatever nonsense. You're going to go right to your ass. Which is, by the way, which is exactly why I never take phone calls. Like, I am the most anti-phone call person you'll meet. I said, if <laughs> you want to, want to message me, send me an email. Because if you're going to send me an email or you're going to send me a WhatsApp or whatever, I know it's going to be right. crisp and to the point. And actually, my, my, my company that uh, we're just launching now, Book Like a Boss, so yeah, like, yeah. My, my partners and I, we're, we do 90% of our work is on WhatsApp because it's very defined, very clear, and... It, that's how we get stuff done. Absolutely. Yeah, and I, I have seen it, and it's wonderful. You should post that in the show notes, too, for people who haven't seen it. Great. <laughs> Thank you. A little, little, yeah, little sure. self-plugging. <laughs> hey, listen, I mean, you're an entrepreneur. You better self-plug. That's right. Show. That's right. <laughs> so, so let me tell you a little bit more uh, just in terms of process and some of the yeah, other yeah, questions yeah. you have there. So a couple things that we do past the design stage that really are the great equalizer that I feel like a lot of places either don't even try to do or usually are not doing with this level of expertise. One thing that we do is the actual implementation of the infographic. So there are so many people, they put it on a landing page, they put it on a blog, and they don't test it. And it doesn't work on mobile, and the social shares don't work, and the embed codes don't work, or they copied somebody else's code, and they're embedding somebody else's infographic. I can't even tell you some of the horror stories I see in the wild every day. People are doing this wrong. So we either go in, we get temporary access control of the site, and we implement it, or we tell our clients that maybe they don't want us to go and do it. Right. Just, you know, we'll do the full QA period and make sure everything is perfect and polished. Because let's say it doesn't work on mobile, poof, there goes 60% of your audience that should have seen it. And now it's failure instead of a success, just because you didn't spend 30 minutes. Good wow. job, right? 100%. So that's huge. And, you know, the tech background comes in handy there, so I've seen all sorts of content management systems. We can work outside of content management systems, build our own pages, you name it, we get it done. So we're like everybody's hero on the outside because we can actually implement instead of having them wait six months for the the tech people to roll out the new system or we're on the system and we're stuck, blah, blah, blah. So then the real magic is the last piece of what we do. Well, everything we do is great, but I'm saying in terms of what I feel like a lot of people don't realize goes into it and what a lot of people don't even try to do 
is promotion. So I already told you back in the day, I used to crash servers for a living. Right. So obviously I know a couple things about the internet. I've also made a lot of friends in media. I write for a lot of different sites. I used to write at Mashable a number of years ago. So we know what the media likes. We know exactly how to word it. We know how to design it. We know what the crowd's like, and we know the words and pictures to put on there to get people to notice. Things don't hit 100,000 views on LinkedIn for all, of all places. People didn't even know you could do that. Right? right? I see people that like sell LinkedIn services for a living saying, what are you doing? This isn't fair. <laughs> right? So we've just figured out formulas that have predictable success. I'm not going to say every time we're hitting a grand slam over the interstate, but every time we're getting up at bat, we're probably at least hitting a double or a triple consistently. Wow. So you're actually so you're actually after the graphic is done, you're actually participating in the marketing of the graphic. Oh yeah. This is the main reason why a lot of people hire us, right? So the place that says do whatever you want, they're saying do whatever you want because they want us to print money in their basement. Right. Right? Or sometimes people have an idea and we kind of massage it and make it a little better. I mean, I'll tell you, like, even competition comes to us sometimes and says, hey, pretty please, can you just promote this? So, I mean, we've really figured out how this works well, because a lot of people, they think, oh, you know, infographics, they've been out a few years now, are they really effective? So I'm, I'm in the middle of writing up two case studies right now, one about the habits of highly successful entrepreneurs, another one that is all about what happens when your client gets featured by anonymous, you know, the hacker people. Oh, yeah. We had something go so hot with them. Anonymous News picked it up, which is crazy and unexpected. Then after that, they shared it on their Facebook page that has about 7 million people. Oh, another one gosh. with another 6 million people. And then other pages started picking it up like wildfire. I'm still in the process of writing this, and numbers may change by the time everybody hears this. But last <laughs> I looked... Collective likes just on Facebook pages is over 52 million people wow. for this infographic. Wow. Crazy. Right. I mean, there's a piece we did in the sports realm I mean, where we got – That's crazy. How many, um, people, how many people watch the Super Bowl? Yeah, right. Not, not as many anymore. Right. That's crazy. So like it 52 is, right? million people. Wow. Right. I mean, there is um, – And that's likes. That's not, even, that's not even people that have seen it. That's people actually took the time to like what they saw. The actual people seeing it is probably double. It's collective. No, no, it's collective likes of the pages. I, I don't want to overinflate that number. I'm no, saying no, 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 like of the people that did it. No, I'm saying, but it, it, there are people that probably saw it that didn't even click like. Oh yeah, no, correct. That would be more actual like an, an impressions level, like you're saying. That's yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Right. And you know, we've got case studies like this all over the place. We had a, a basketball one where we got a guy. Uh, who, like on his 23rd birthday, basically he got like a 48 million dollar max contract. He used to play for the Orlando Magic. Now he's at the Pistons. Um, wow. There's a paint. There's a piece we did for a painting company that's probably been seen tens of millions of times. Um, and paint is boring, right? I mean, <laughs> you know, you've heard that. You've heard the phrase like watching Watch paint it. dry. Right, right, right. right? <laughs> so we did a piece, and I can share this to you in the links about the psychology of color. I mean, there was a point in time where if you did a Google image search for the word infographic, it was like one of the first things. Like this is what Google and the world like considered like this is an infographic. Wow. Right? Amazing. So it's stuff like that, right? I mean, it's a piece that – that piece, the one I'm talking about with color, that's yeah. probably six years old now. And people still share it on Facebook and Twitter and stumble upon and Pinterest every day. Wow. Still, years later. I think it front-paged on Reddit like three months ago. Somebody was telling me. I'm like, what, what piece are you talking about? Oh, I'm like, this? This is like more than half a decade old. Is this thing ever going to stop? <laughs> wow. But that's the thing, right? If you can make something quality and enduring – like. 
it's short-sighted if you just go for the big win, right? So if you just do something about the Olympics or an election or something like that, you may get some play now. But if you can do something that's evergreen, sure. that will always be powerful, it's just so much more worth it. So, so tell me, so, okay, let's go to the cost a little bit. So what does it cost to produce sure. one of these uh, beautiful inter, um, infographics? Yeah, not cheap, right, as you could imagine. So generally we do stuff in mid to upper single-digit thousands. I'd say a lot of the stuff that we do generally is about five ten grand. Mm-hmm. Wow, and that includes so that includes get, marketing, marketing, and yeah, everything? that includes the marketing exactly. So I mean, you know, do a year of SEO, PPC, PR, paid ads, retargeting, all that stuff adds up too. So dollar for dollar, you're pro- as long as we're performing well, this is probably going to outperform the other stuff that you, more often than not stops performing once you stop paying for it. Sure, sure. No, it's it's definitely like if you think about it, you know, I uh, you know, I've created a bunch of different videos, different projects and a quality top of the line quality video for 2 minutes or 60 seconds, whatever it is, could be 10, 15, 20 grand. So, if, exactly. you're, getting, if you're getting the same value from an infographic and there's it's not just about, you know, it, it, the pricing makes sense to me, especially if, you know, uh, if you're doing the marketing as well for it, it's, uh, you know, it sounds like a good deal, actually. Sounds like we should start doubling the prices, right? <laughs> <laughs> you may. Listen, yeah, you, I know. You raise it by 10% and you see what happens, you know? Just keep going. <laughs> yeah, we, it's a difficult thing to price because there aren't a lot of things but not for our, But to obviously not for our from entrepreneur, you know, listeners, right? Yeah, of course. They, they'll take good care of. <laughs> <laughs> obviously. Obviously. Right. So, I mean, it's, it's such a great, great story. I mean, I love it, and I, I think it's fantastic. And, and what do you say? It takes about a month to make one and start the marketing process, or, or how long does it take? Yeah, more or less. So a lot of that just has to do with how much back and forth it is with the client. So if we're dealing with a very large corporate client, they may have to get people across multiple divisions, across multiple countries. Yeah. They may have some legal or regulatory or branding things. They may have a whole very complicated series of just different kinds of approvals and everybody's looking at different things, right? So that's one thing. But if we're dealing with an entrepreneur, that can go a lot faster too. I mean, I'll tell you a couple of years ago, you mentioned the Super Bowl. So a couple of years ago, we get contacted by the agency that runs stuff for Pizza Hut. And they say, hey, Pizza Hut wants to make a splash this year for the Super Bowl. Now, keep in mind, the Super Bowl was a week from <laughs> a week <laughs> from that point. We're like, Great. Yeah, we'll get started right away for next year. And they're like, no, no, no. This year. And we're like, what are you talking about? But we pulled it off. We had a week to do it. And, you know, we were burning some midnight oil, doing some stuff on Sunday, whatever. But we wow. had to do all sorts of crazy stuff. We had to work with the agency. We had to work with brand. We had to make sure it was on point with style. Right, right. But at the wow. same time, making a splash, whatever that means. And then we also had to get data. Where do you get data about the company? The company itself has a data forecasting, data warehousing division. So we would have to give them certain asks. For, so for Super Bowl Sunday, they deliver at the time, I think they deliver like 2 million pizzas or something crazy. Wow. It's their biggest delivery day of the year. Because everybody's staying at home, you know, having their parties. Sure. It was crazy. We pulled it off. Certainly not our best piece, but that's why we're talking about it right now. Because our ability to, you know, really drive and pivot and do things. But I, I, I kind of hate doing projects like that because you will lose something. Right. In well, terms first of all, I just want, I want, I want my <laughs> listeners to. I just want to hear. I just want to read off some of the uh, clients they've actually done designs sure. for infographics for. So I'm just looking uh, Adobe, BBC. Uh, Lexus, Fox, Google, Hallmark, Pizza Hut, as you said, PepsiCo, um, Skype, 
Twitter. I mean, these these are you talk Fortune four, uh, you know, five hundred. Actually, talking Fortune one hundred. A lot of these companies. Absolutely. Yeah, and you know what's interesting, Malcolm? You may be curious. How do we talk to all these people? Yeah. So a lot of them actually reach out to us because when you start looking to see who's making the preeminent stuff that's getting the press. A lot of times you'll notice when you go to the bottom of the infographic, usually in the bottom right, there's a calling card on there sure. developed by now sourcing. So, for instance, let's say that Psychology of Color piece, the week that that came out and went massively viral, like everybody all over the Internet was just talking about it. And it, it just lit up like wildfire. Both Adobe and Google called me on the phone and said, we don't know what you're doing with the Internet, kid, but we want some <laughs> of that. Wow. And you might think, what in the world does Adobe – let's just pick on Adobe for a second. Yeah. Adobe is a huge software company, Fortune 500. Everybody knows that name. Sure. Maybe, maybe more people know Google, but Adobe is enormous. Right. Adobe makes Photoshop, right? They make the creative suite. They make <laughs> Illustrator. They are making, they're literally making the tools that we use <laughs> right, to make, to make the, the infographic. Wow. So a lot of people think like, you know, why does a company with 20, 30, 50, 100,000 people that obviously has – you know, creative people and design people, what do they need you for? And so I think some of this comes back to, we're almost like, it's, we're at the crosshairs of being like a design firm with business acumen. So a lot of times you may call a design place and they're not going to pick up the phone or email them and they get back to you in a few days. We know that that's no way to run a business. If somebody sends us an inquiry, we're back to them in like 30 seconds, right? We right. pick up our phone. We have project management. We have controls on things. We, you know, I've sat on the other side of the table and I, I feel their pain and I know their frustrations. So I impart that knowledge on our team to make sure that we're to be taken seriously. Because sometimes if you're just pure creative, pure design, you're just kind of all over the place and it's so fluid that you're not really doing practical business problems. Right, right. Amazing. Yeah, one other thing I'll add to that, if I may. Sure, yeah. Please. On the business pragmatism, business acumen is very important to these companies. So if we've done a lot of work in, let's say, cybersecurity, it's not like you have to spend a month explaining everything to us because we already get it. We know all the buzzwords. We know the players in the industry. We know the publications that like it. You see what I'm saying? So that's a huge powerhouse advantage as opposed to just, let's say, let's design something and then you're relying on the client for not just the design direction and all the data, but you don't even know what you're doing. Might as well be Chinese, right? right? right. It's just, it's pointless. So when you don't even know what you're designing for and you're so removed from the process, people, your heart is not into it, right? So you just end up not making something that really speaks to everyone. Wow, this is I, I love. I mean, I'm just and, and, I, and I, I'm telling all my listeners. I'm, I'll put a link, obviously, to the website nowsourcing.com. Check out the portfolio. It's just genius. A lot of this stuff is just absolutely fin- fantastic, and you could just like spend time. First, you, I don't know if you've done it or you should. I mean, you should do. It. You should put together like an infographic uh, book, like a coffee table book, because uh, you know I think that would be so interesting to people. And uh, you could autograph mine uh, that you sent me. Uh, so, <laughs> but it, but it's like. So let me just add another question in terms of monetization because uh-huh. you know when you do a video so there's ways to monetize the video with pre-roll post-roll mid-roll ads or whatever you know however YouTube does it and so when you're a content creator and you're creating these things or even paying for a video you, you try to make some money back that way here I mean you're getting 50 million views so I guess obviously that translates to business for the company behind the infographic the people company uh-huh. that hired you was there any other way to and this is just because I, I personally don't know is there any way to monetize content or monetize infographics like this? 
based sure. on uh, so, based on views or or, or yeah, likes so or absolutely. So when we get things into publications and they catch fire, so we get onto places like Business Insider a lot. All these guys are making money, so it's in it for a lot of places that we're publishing to to run stuff because they know that they're going to get something quality that will do well, mm-hmm. right? So that's one thing. Um, our clients don't generally put ads on stuff. I'm kind of against that because I don't want it to slow down. Because remember, you're serving a very large image, and we don't want people to get distracted. We don't want a bunch of – we speak to a lot of people, like, please don't have those live chat hovering things. You want them to have the experience so they come back. You want everybody to be your sales force. You want everybody to share this with everybody. Sure. Right? So I'd say that we're a little bit anti on that, but at the same time, a lot of our clients employ lead capture types of technologies. Some people put it behind a wall where, you know, maybe we'll show you a little bit of it. And then if you, you know, give us all your contact info and it's lead generation. We work for lots of lead generation places that because they're getting all these authority links that they'd never get, I mean, they're just killing it on, you know, Google search results and stuff. So a lot of them don't care about that side of it because that's sort of a tricky business anyway. So we don't generally always do it on like the publisher thing. But there are occasions where you'll have like the Forbes of the world and stuff like that. Well, they may have like some sponsored content or something. And that may be an entirely sponsored play for their client. So that's another way that we can work too. Good question. Amazing. Amazing. Now, do, do you ever, I mean, I'm sure because you're very creative, um, so like the money really, you have a, a client who's willing to pay you. So like, obviously you do that, but do you ever come up and say, Hey, wow, I want to do an infographic on this. And you just put your team to do it. And for your own sake, for your own, uh, uh, I guess to promote yourself, so to speak, promote your own company. Great question. So what people sometimes don't realize is every client I have, unless it's an internal piece or I don't get to put my brand on it is working for me. Uh-huh. <laughs> so they're paying me and they're also promoting me. So let's say the different case studies that we'll share in the notes, every one of those things will give us incredible amounts of money because sure. I'm going to be on podcasts. I'm going to be on webinars. I'm going to speak on stage about it. We're going to have case studies. We can send it an email. We can blog about it, put it in social. So all of these things deliver incredible amounts of money. We also do trade shows. So if yeah, I mean, it doesn't really matter, right? That's really just part of our marketing strategy is just getting people's attention. So you, you could be searching for, you know, let's say you spend a week trying to figure out, you know, let's say you're a big tech company and you want to do an infographic. You might spend a week searching every blog, every list of people that make infographics, all stuff in your industry, and you might find like 30 things in a row that all come back to us, right? So I'm, I'm basically surrounding our prospective customers in a web back to us. Not in a creepy way, in a good way. Right, right, no, in a good way, no, 100%. Right. No, it's great. I guess I mentioned like you wake up and say, wow, this would make a really good infographic, but we don't have a client yet for that concept, right. and you'll just so like sort of do it. Right, so specifically to that point, we very rarely get to make stuff that's just for us. Very, very rarely. Once in a while, we've probably done as many as I can count on one or two hands uh-huh. because we're busy, right? I mean, there's plenty of people that want to hire us, so we don't really need to do free stuff for ourselves. Right, that's what I was thinking. I will tell yeah. you, yeah, I'll tell you what we end up doing sometimes that's sort of like what you're saying, a little bit of a hybrid. So sometimes we'll have an idea and we're just going to say, this is incredible. We know this is going to do well. Let's just go shop it. So rather than oh, put something out for free, we can just say, hey, client A through Z, there's right. going to be people that give us lots of autonomy. So if we say, hey, we have an incredible idea, we already have somebody that's going to buy it, so we don't need to bother with that. Interesting. Wow, that's fantastic. I love it. Really love it. 
So it was such a great story, such a great company, such a great idea. You know, I'm floored. Let me ask you something else. Actually, I have what we call our lightning round. Uh, we're asking you different sure. questions, but you know, at the same time, I just love talking about this infographic space. I think it's so uh, great. How, how many, um, like, how how many projects do you work on, like, on any given month? Uh, a lot. That's a tricky question because some projects can be kind of in the cooler, and you know, the team's not ready. Like, their teams aren't ready for things. So sometimes we have things that can potentially sit for months, and you know, we start something, but they're not ready, and people reorganize. So I mean, it's usually. I'd say a couple dozen at a time. Wow. And then, I mean, some days are crazy, right? So, I mean, there's some days where we might not launch anything. There's some days where we might launch one thing or two things or three things. I think, like, the record we ever had, I think we launched, like, seven things on one day. That was just, like, that was a terrible day. (laughs) Too many different, too many things to think about. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Yeah, I mean, so things kind of, things fluctuate a lot. Uh, This time of year, we're incredibly busy because we're almost like the gym of the internet, where people are like all they're all stoked about what they're going to do with their creative budgets this year and their content budgets. And they come to us and they're all raring to go. And, you know, everybody at the end of the year is like, hey, you know, let's talk and strategize and plan. But, you know, come January, February. Oh, man. Like, let's just go. That's awesome. Yeah, that's really great. What what would you what would what's the uh, who's the craziest clients? I guess I don't want to say crazy in a bad way, but like the, the most unexpected client that you guys ever got. Good question. That you guys so, are just like, oh my god, like Google, like oh my gosh, Google just called. Like, what was that like? That was weird, right? <laughs> I mean, it's it's kind of flattering when some of the largest companies on earth just think that you're so cool. Right. And you know, I, I am a humble person. I I think it's important to have some kind of healthy professional ego. Right. So, like you read off some of the clients. I mean, we have a a massive clients page that people sometimes say, I'm afraid to work with you. I'm not big like that. You know, and it's like, no, 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 it's cool. We're just showing you that we've done things that are good. Um, But craziest, so there's different, a couple different ways we can answer this. One is crazy, like that it's a crazy, big and influential place. And one could be crazy, like this is such a wild kind of thing. Let me try to pick an example that's the best of both worlds. So once upon a time, there's a company called Cat and Crunch. (laughs) <laughs> which is owned by Quaker, which is owned by Pepsi. Hopefully I'm doing that right. right. So it's interesting. Pepsi and Coke, most people think just battle on soft drinks, but no, Coke buys up all the different brands. Like they have a bunch of orange juice and vitamin water and all these different things. Pepsi owns all the snack food and breakfast cereal. Right. So that's usually how they fight. In any case, so Captain Crunch comes along and like, we're usually like the crazy idea maker people. And they basically said, all right, so the captain is going to come to life, and um, if you've ever watched Space Ghost or anything like that, he's going to have a late-night TV show on YouTube, and he's going to interview guests in a cereal bowl from the 80s. And we're like, okay, I don't know what everybody's <laughs> smoking, but sure. So that was a really crazy ask, first off, that it's a major global Fortune 500 company that's backing it. Right. The, the other part that was crazy was the idea and the ask in the first place. And the other other part that was crazy was we actually got to redesign Captain Crunch. I thought we were going to get sued. And they're like, no, no, it's cool. We're the brand. We're telling you to do it. This is fine. Wow. So that was a, that was a pretty wild uh, bunch of hoops there. Amazing. Amazing. And I'm looking at I like – I share that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. I, and I'm looking now. I'm just – at the um, – uh, the top ten PPV, PPV uh, pay-per-view fights of all time. I'm looking at that infographic, mm-hmm. and it's just so interesting. Like everybody hears about yeah, the big fights, but to awesome. see the top ten, I mean, 
It's just just great, great quality we, content. So we got Mike Tyson to share that one. I was oh, so really? When that happened, yes. Oh wow, that's crazy. That was, that was a moment. Um, <laughs> it was also it was on a whole bunch of other very large sites. Uh, I think like USA Today picked it up. All sorts of crazy stuff. Now, when they pick so, it up, they, like USA Today, they pick it up. Does that? Do they? What do they just credit you, or do they actually have to pay you to use these infographics? Like, how does that work? Very important question. Thank you for bringing that up. They do not have to pay us. The way that they pay, in quotes, everybody, is that they are putting attribution back to the client. Uh So if they put it in as a link, that's good enough for me, if you're USA Today. They happen to pick up the entire – they ran the entire enormous graphic and credited the client. So we were all really happy with that one. Wow. That was awesome. Yep. Beautiful. Amazing. All right. I'm just going to ask you a couple of quick lightning round questions because really we could go on. Sure. You know, for another hour, it's just yeah. really, really, really uh, great um, um, uh, story, and I thank you so much for sharing it with uh, with me and with our audience. Uh, of course, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really feeling pumped up from this. <laughs> so Good. fantastic, and I know we're definitely going to work together sometime in the future. So I'm excited about oh, that as well. All right, so Absolutely. let me ask a couple of lightning round questions. But what is the best advice you ever received? Best advice I ever received. You know, I've been thinking about advice because I have been really, for anybody that follows me on Facebook, I've been doing so much stuff this year where I'm just doing like these quick one-liners that really make people think because I think there's just so much negativity. You ever wonder why like all the news is so negative? It's because your brain processes it faster because it's like fight or flight response. So so there's so much negativity in the world and there's all sorts of psychological studies on this that I'm just like, fine, you know what? Screw all this. I'm sharing positivity. So I feel like there's, but I was basically saying that like, I really like to share optimism. I really like to share a positive message. And I think it's important to also, as an entrepreneur, have tremendous tenacity. Like you never give up. So I remember asking someone that I considered a mentor a number of years ago, when do you give up on a sales prospect? Like, how many times should you <laughs> contact them? Right. He's just like, I don't know, never. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> and it's amazing. I've had things where, especially when we have things that are a viral hit, I've had it where people say, you know, stop contacting me. I don't care about your service. And then, you know, a couple months, in some cases, a couple years, they come back on their own and they say, you know what? I've been following you through the years and you're just so massively killing it. I, like, I just have to give you money. So, Yeah. <laughs> Wow. Great. Fantastic. Let me ask you another question. When you hear the word successful, who do you think of and why? That's such a, an interesting question. So I think that people in today's world in general think of success completely wrong. They look at people who are rich, whatever that means, and that means that that's success. I think, you know, if we're talking from a Torah perspective, people who are happy are happy with their lot. So I think it has nothing to do with how much wealth people think that you have in the world and how much actual wealth you have in the world. But I think just being truly happy with where you are. So um, there's some great books on this too. There are people that were um, marketing consultants that tried to figure out how to market things to millionaires. So you may have heard of these books, but one is called The Millionaire Next Door and one's called Secrets of the Millionaire Mind. And people have it wrong. There's all these aspirationally wealthy people that buy all these cars and buy these fancy houses and all these artifact items, fancy suits and watches. Like I don't even own a watch and I live in the Midwest. (laughs) I don't care. 
I don't need all this code. Like, I am happy. You know, God's blessed me with a, a wonderful wife and six children. And six a kids, great wow. Opportunity of business. Yeah, and, you know, another thing, <laughs> six kids is called motivation. Everybody thinks it's like <laughs> the young entrepreneur that's single. It's like, no, when you have a bunch of people that are going to starve to death if you don't go make that's a, that forces you to the fire a little bit better, I sure. would say. Wow, wow, wow. So I think it's really having your life in balance as opposed to just, you know, let's go get money. Like everybody was obsessed with Steve Jobs and then they all read his book and they're like, oh, oh, oh he was, <laughs> never mind. wasn't such a great guy, you know, behind I'm the scenes. I'm going to go fishing instead. Yeah, <laughs> right. he, he really seemed like he did not enjoy a lot of his life. So who like, is? Who do you, who, who do you think is successful? Based on that, who do you see as successful? That's a, I will have to think about that question more. It's such a hard kind of question. I think it's it's all the people that you don't even notice that aren't all in the, the news and all of that, right? It could be your neighbor. I think it's people that just have figured out how to get all this stuff done, and they may not have the, the glorified life with all these summer houses and travel all over the world. I think people that just have it well-balanced, right? It. Very good. Right? You could just have a person who's like a fisherman, and you know, like the big entrepreneur is like, hey, why don't you go work crazy? And, and the guy's like, well, why do I need to go work like that? I, I got enough food. I get fish. And he's like, yeah, but like you can make all this money. Well, I'm good. But, you know, like then you could retire someday. He's like, oh, yeah. So like what should I do when I retire? Fish. Okay. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. I love that story. All right. So I would ask you one last question. And then um, sure. I, you know, I appreciate all the time that you're giving me. Oh, of course. Uh, so, so I'm appreciative. So what does it mean to you to be a from entrepreneur? How does that play into your daily uh, work life? Absolutely. And I, I love this question. So we are supposed to be a light into the nations, right? Yeah. So there's so many people that don't even know what they live for. And I think that I, whether people are going to buy one, two, five, a hundred infographics, or they're just going to hear me talk for 15 minutes, I think that I am a connector of worlds where I'm just this guy just doing crazy things on the internet that a lot of from people are like, what's with this guy? <laughs> but I think like a lot of people are just like, you know, some people just like don't really get that kind of vibe from Balichubas anyway. I feel like sometimes where it's just like, you know, we're just marching to a different drum beat or something. Right. So I just, I just feel like I have to sometimes just connect these worlds, right? Kodesh and Kol, where I think that there's so much in it. So I don't always speak about religion, and I don't try to alienate people and all of that. You know, people can believe whatever they want to believe, but right. I think that there is an ultimate truth and an ultimate message that everybody at the root can identify with. So I think that's really what it is, right? You're not a from person just because you have a fancy, you know, Bekashur or something. You're not a from person just because you learn Gemara and just because you go to shul. You're from all of the time that you're alive, Right. So that's why you're supposed to mix Torah with a profession. So right. you might as well, and that is an expectation. In fact, for most people, unless you're you know sitting there learning full time, you're spending more of your awake moments working than you are learning and davening. Right. Right. So it's very important to be super ethical, to be well understood by people, and just really promote that positive message. So that way, when somebody meets a from Jew for the first time. They say, wow, I met this guy and he had this Yanka on, and holy cow, this guy was amazing. Beautiful. Right? So it's about the Kiddush Hashem. Absolutely. You Beautiful. know it. All right, Brian, this has been absolutely fantastic. What a way to kick off our 50th episode. So uh, I thank you so much for taking the time. I love, you know, I really enjoy getting to know you and to hearing your story. Uh, as I said before, I'm feeling energized, and so call to you. 
and you should continue Thank to you, uh, be matzliach. Thank you, Nachum. You as well. It's been a pleasure. Great being on here. Thank you, Brian. Call to. Thank you for listening to the From Entrepreneur Podcast with Nahum Kligman. We hope you learned something valuable and will share this with your friends. For show notes, archives of previous episodes, and more information to help you start and grow your business, please visit our website, www.fromentrepreneur.com. Listen, learn, be Masliak.